0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Three guests in two segments today. First, we'll hear from Catherine Ballou, author of Bring the War Home, a history of the white power movement from the end of the Vietnam War into the 1990s. And towards the end of the show, we'll hear from Billy Fleming and A.L. McCullough, two of the dozen authors of the 2100 Project and Atlas for the Green New Deal. First, a few words in the economic news. According to Household Pulse, an experimental bi-weekly survey of U.S. households by the Census Bureau, employment growth, which was mostly brisk from April through July, looks to have slowed since. That makes sense. The easy recalls have happened, and now the story shifts to the long-term displaced. And almost all the aid has ended, even Trump's pathetic extension of emergency unemployment benefits by executive order. Never generous nor robustly financed, they're now slowing to a trickle. New applications for unemployment insurance have been drifting lower, as has the number of drawing benefits, but the figures are still quite high. Over 23 million if you combine traditional programs with the expanded pandemic assistance that covers freelancers and others usually outside the system. Meanwhile, negotiations between the administration and Congress for a new rescue package have collapsed for like the 57th time. In other news, as a student of the rot of the American ruling class, I have to say that even I am surprised to see the president emerge as a viral super spreader, the White House turned into the worst coronavirus hotspot in D.C., the infection count on Capitol Hill passed 120, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff going into isolation. The governing class has not only been unable to cope with the pandemic, it can't even save itself. Now, white power. As we watch the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer wreak havoc in Charlottesville and Portland, it's tempting to think these are mostly phenomena of our time, but they have a long history. As Kathleen Blue puts it on her website, her book Bring the War Home explores how white power activists wrought a cohesive social movement through a common story about warfare and its weapons, uniforms, and technologies. By uniting previously disparate Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi skinhead, and other groups, the movement carried out escalating acts of violence that reached a crescendo in the 1995 bombing in Oklahoma City. That's the end of the quote. The various armed far-right movements of our time are very much in that line. Several interesting things stand out in Blue's history. One is the importance of the Vietnam War, the war they aimed to bring home, in shaping the white power movement. Not just the humiliating loss to the enemy many American soldiers held in racist contempt, but also the sense that they were betrayed by their own government, not allowed to win. That consciousness would fuel the movement for many years afterwards. Another important point, the white power movement, a term by the way which Blue prefers for reasons she'll explain, is not a typical political organization. It's decentered and leaderless at least nominally. Actions like mass shootings may seem to be conducted by lone wolves, but in fact, that's how the movement works. It's united not like a disciplined political party, but by a common worldview, a common language, and a common set of inspirational texts, like the Turner Diaries. Sadly, we didn't have time to talk about the white power movement's international activities, but that's an important part of their history. They work with the CIA in the Central American Wars of the 1980s. There are also mercenaries fighting the racist fight in Southern Africa, notably Rhodesia. To this day, Rhodesia, a racist state named after a notorious imperialist and white supremacist Cecil Rhodes, he of the famed scholarships, is an icon of white supremacists. Dylan Roof, the Charleston killer, was photographed with a Rhodesian flag on his jacket alongside a South African flag from the apartheid era. Ballou is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, Kathleen Ballou. It must be an occupational hazard of being a historian to think that there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, we're all thinking that what we saw in Charlottesville a couple of years ago and uh, what we see, saw in Portland over the summer, all this talk of a civil war, there are an awful lot of precedents for that going back decades, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So on the one hand, part of the work of a historian, I think, is to help people to see that what seems new now is not new, but is actually part of this longer story. And partly, I think we're just living in a moment that is off the charts in so many different ways. We're so far off the map. We've seen parallels to these kinds of epidemics, these kinds of economic contractions, this kind of moment of white nationalist organizing, but I'm just not aware of any time that has had all of this happening at once. A lot of people are feeling very flooded. And to my mind, history of the present is one of the most useful sets of tools as a methodology for encountering that kind of a moment of overwhelming information.
0: Yeah, well, the way I've been thinking about the whole Trump era is that there's a lot of consistency or precedence here, but it's also a turn for the worse. So I guess that's true of this as well.
1: Yeah, it's hard to sort of imagine um, that the progress narrative that I think a lot of people had of the United States is intact for very many people um, in the present moment. Certainly, there is a lot of information to go against that long old idea that we're moving towards some kind of evolution as a country. I think instead, what we see is that if we would like to keep our republic, we have work ahead.
0: Okay, so this, this white power movement, uh, white supremacist movement, uh, neo-Nazi, neo-Confederate, whatever you want to call it, you, you like white power, right?
1: Uh, for the term, yeah. yeah. I,
0: think, I, mean, I don't <laughs> mean you approve of the doctor, but
1: <laughs> The danger is that if we say simply white supremacy or white supremacist, what we end up creating is a false idea that white supremacy has to be overt and violent, when in fact, I think scholars have now come to a broad agreement that white supremacy should be thought of not only as the fringe, but as many mainstream beliefs and systems that structure our society in much more insidious ways. And then there's a problem with the phrase white nationalism, because I think people hear that phrase and think of kind of overzealous patriotism, when in fact, the nation in white nationalism is not the United States hasn't been for a very long time. The nation invoked in white nationalism is the Aryan nation and is in many ways fundamentally opposed to the United States, at least insofar as the United States is imagined as a place of inclusive participatory democracy.
0: So how would you periodize this movement? Obviously, violent armed white supremacy, whatever you want to call it, in the long sweep of history It has a very long pedigree. The Klan goes back into the 19th century, Jim Crow. How would you periodize this?
1: Coming down on that periodization question is exactly where we see the shift away from um, what I would think of as vigilante violence in support of state or systemic power and a shift towards what I think we can more properly think of as revolutionary violence, white supremacist violence that is interested in the overthrow of the state. That shift is really a post-Vietnam Moment, Um, And what we see in that moment is a shift towards anti-government violence and also an expansion of a willingness among these groups and activists to form bridges that hadn't been there between groups that had been warring. So in other words, I mean, it's a moment of sort of cohesive bond building and social movement organizing between groups like neo-Nazis and Klan that had been at odds before this moment, but from the 1980s forward, have really seen themselves as fellow travelers in the project of white power violence to overthrow the government.
0: The white power movement um, seems powered by a potent cocktail of racism, xenophobia, and anti-communism. How would you weigh those various strands? And how how do they work together? Um, How important are they relative to each other?
1: So the answer to that really changes over time. So what we see in the late 1970s is that anti-communism stands up as a narrative for people who have some amount of racist belief, but have become aware that it is not anymore a publicly palatable kind of way to express a political opinion. And this is perhaps especially true in the South, where there's a long history of conflating anti-communism with fears about race mixing and social equality. So what we see is anti-communism being used as a recruitment tool Such that the movement can figure out some public support and then also reach activists who can be recruited into more overt racist ideology. As we move forward into the 1990s and past the end of the Cold War, anti-communism, of course, becomes less of a major narrative for these groups. And there's actually a bit of a crisis about this, I think, not just on the fringe, but in the American polity more generally, where you know, a lot of people who had been going around with this very intense feeling that the end of the world was coming. And this is not a fringe belief. A lot of people carried this around with them every day in the fear of the bomb, the fear of the end of the world at the hands of the Soviet Union. Um, I think historians have not adequately described this moment of transition where the enemy in that narrative disappears with the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But the belief in the end of the world doesn't just disappear. People are sort of wandering around a especially in the 90s, with uh, an apocalypse in search of an engine. And that series of beliefs sort of lays open this path of recruitment into the militia movement and anti-government violence in the 90s.
0: I was surprised to learn um, t- uh, in the 70s, these uh, white power guys were uh, very obsessed with protecting the border. So this, this fear of immigration has deep roots uh, in this kind of thought.
1: Yes, it does. And one way to think about that is that there's a host of viewpoints and social issues that I think most people would think of as simply conservative issues. So, anti immigration, anti gay rights, anti feminism, anti abortion are all familiar to kind of a general educated public, I think, as part of just a conservative slate of issues. But to activists in the white power movement who have that same set of issues, they mean something very different and much more dramatic, which is to say that white power activists opposed all of these same things, not just because of sort of like the typical set of conservative reasons, but because they saw all of these as a apocalyptic threat to the white birth rate and therefore as tantamount to racial annihilation. So they oppose immigration not because of some abstract fear about, I don't know, the changing character of the nation, but because they thought that immigrants with a higher birth rate would come and outnumber white people, leading to intermarriage and the end of the white race. And within this ideology, that is the same thing as the end of the world. And for some of these activists, they even imagine this as a possible road away from their holy belief. and, And there's there's a large segment of this movement that believes their role is to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. For those activists, um, something like a rising immigration rates or even, you know, what we usually think of as the soft change that is the demographic transformation of the nation or a state or a county or a community from majority white to minority white, they see that as apocalyptic threat. They see that as the end of the world.
0: What about the relation to Christianity? Nazis um, didn't like the religion of love. They wanted to go back to all those old Norse gods. Nietzsche, of course, despised Christianity for being too soft. How did they process the religion of love and how does it fit into their ideology?
1: So the Christian component of this movement espoused something called Christian identity, which is a white political theology that posits that it's similar to British Israelism and posits that white people are the true lost tribes of Israel and that everybody else is descended either from beasts or from Satan. That. Group of people is very active in the white power movement, but so are the people you've just referenced who are interested in um, Norse pagan, Odinism, um, Vogue, Asatru. There's a, there's a wide variety of these ideologies. Um, so religion is one of the places that we can see that in every way but race, this is an incredibly diverse social movement. It's a bunch of different religious perspectives, and, and all of them might be present within one group, within one meeting. People moved between these different religious viewpoints sometimes, and they also held double allegiances. So you might think of somebody like Lewis Beam, who's a major figure in this movement, who um, described himself as identity, meaning Christian identity slash Baptist. So he saw himself as able to participate in um, baptism and Christian identity at the same time.
0: You point out foreign wars have a lot to do with powering the white power movement. Um, What generally about the relation between foreign wars and, and this movement?
1: Yeah, this is one of the big surprises of this project for me. But um, if you trace the rise and fall of Klan and white power activity in U.S. history, it turns out that the best predictor for a surge is not rising immigration, civil rights legislation, poverty, economic collapse, or any number of explanations that have been offered by historians. It turns out that the best predictor is the aftermath of warfare. So I wondered because of that, if what I would find might be disaffected veterans powering the movement, and certainly there are instrumental veterans who are involved here, but actually this phenomenon is much bigger than that. It turns out that all of us, all of American society becomes more violent in the aftermath of warfare, cuts across age group, that cuts across gender, that cuts across who did and did not serve. There's something about this, this historical moment in the aftermath of combat that makes people available for this kind of violence and then Klan and white power activists have historically had great success opportunistically capitalizing on that moment for their own purposes of recruitment and doing violence now what that means in the present i think is another place where we are way off the map in terms of historical precedent because we are in the aftermath of warfare But we are in this long, quiet, protracted aftermath of warfare that's unlike anything we've really experienced um, in the aftermath of major war. My undergraduates don't remember 9-11 anymore. We've literally been at war their entire life, or at least their entire living memory. So what happens to this aftermath effect when it is so segmented and so sort of pushed down from our national conversation? I mean, war doesn't even rate in the top five or 10 list of crises that our nation seems to be facing in the present. And yet we're at war and we're, we're still fighting these battles. Um, We're still seeing this repercussion. So I suppose what I would say is that I I anticipate we will see this backlash and perhaps we're already seeing it, but um, I, I don't know what happens to that effect when the war is so deeply subsumed from the American conscience.
0: I'm speaking with historian Kathleen Ballew, author of Bring the War Home, published by Harvard University Press. One particular war had an enormous effect on what we might call the modern white power movement. That is um, the Vietnam War, the loss, U.S. loss in Vietnam, but also the things that these guys saw there. What, what was the effect of Vietnam and what they, they're trying to undo with their their movement?
1: I think the big thing about Vietnam is not just the loss, although the loss is huge for these activists. I think it's also the narrative about how that loss occurred that becomes a live wire for the white power movement, which is to say, they have a story that they tell about that what we learn from the Vietnam War is the fundamental betrayal and wrongness of the state, or at least the federal government. Um, And what we see is that narrative, which of course has traction, way beyond the fringe and even becomes the main way that people talk about this war in our culture. I mean, this narrative of government betrayal is in memoirs. It's in all of the famous Vietnam War movies. It's all over the place. Um, And it certainly becomes the main way that politics understands the war. We can think of Reagan's comments about people not being allowed to win. Um, We can think about the ways that um, people saw the Gulf War as an attempt to re or re-wage the Vietnam War. So what we see again is white power activists using this broader cultural moment of the failure of the war to radicalize people for their own purposes. Practically, what that does is it creates a narrative that gets people in the same room, which is to say that Klansmen and neo-Nazis are able to find common ground and organize together where they had previously been at odds, It also creates a very powerful new sort of performative culture for the movement. And what I mean by that is simply that in the 1980s, many of these activists put away their white robes and hoods and instead put on camouflage fatigues. Um, And then it also creates this escalation in tactics and capacity for violence wrought by the weapons and methods of the Vietnam War. We see them using military grade weapons ranging from um, semi and fully automatic weapons to um, explosives and materiel. We see the targeted recruitment of active duty and veteran troops. And we even see things like people obtaining tons. And by that, I mean literal tons of stolen military munitions and weapons from um, army posts and bases. It takes the military a very long time to adequately respond to this, and the movement is quite successful at using all of these resources to mobilize and to escalate its violent attacks on American civilians.
0: You mentioned Louis Beam. He takes up a lot of your pages. Interesting character. Who was he? What was his importance?
1: So Louis Beam is an interesting figure because his writings are so capacious that he really gives a full accounting of his own belief system and his own career within the movement. And also he's the author of several texts, including Essays of a Klansman, that become pivotal for many other activists. So Beam served two tours as a Huey helicopter gunner in Vietnam, was profoundly moved by his experience there, or at least said he was, and then came home and spoke about his experience fighting the war to sort of illustrate his feeling that the government had betrayed him and not allowed him to win, he's articulating that view um, quite coherently for many, many, many pages, many essays. He joined a Klan group and then um, eventually joined up with uh, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which is the organization helmed by David Duke. And then he starts a series of paramilitary training camps in the Galveston Bay area and bombs a local radio station, as you know, um, and then goes on to commandeer a campaign of the violent harassment of Vietnamese fishermen in the Gulf. There is a response to that that bars him and his group from paramilitary clan training and, and briefly shutters that, that camp, although it reopens later. Um, and at that point, Beam relocates to Idaho, joins Aryan nations and becomes a sort of roving ambassador and leader of the white power movement. He's involved in the order in the mid-1980s and um, has an enormous intellectual impact on the movement as a whole.
0: And uh, one of the things he helped devise was this idea of leaderless resistance and the cell structure. Could you talk about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. This is one of the most important sort of things that happens in the white power movement in the early 80s. So leaderless resistance is, it's cell-style terrorism. So it's it's familiar probably to your your listeners because it's very much of a piece with something like cell-style terror that we see in Islamist extremism, except this happened in the early 80s, so this predates a lot of that command structure.
0: They picked it up for some Communist Party structure too, right?
1: Indeed, although the Klan will not tell you that that's where they got it. They, they insist that this comes from military counterinsurgency practice because, of course, they, they don't want to be borrowing from the left, although I think you're right to say that they are, in fact, doing that. So the white power model is simply that um, one or a few activists can work in a cell Um, Without communication with other cells and without direct ties to movement leadership. So they adopt that structure largely because the Klan had really struggled with infiltration by FBI and other government agents in the 60s and was deeply frustrated about that. And they also wanted to make it difficult to prosecute when people were arrested for doing violent action. But Actually, the legacy of leaderless resistance, which I think was largely unanticipated and I think is much more catastrophic, has been that the white power movement has not been understood as a public safety threat the way that other terrorist movements have. Instead, what we get are a string of stories about, quote unquote, lone wolf attacks And we don't usually get the the sense of the rising tide of white power violence. So even in the present moment, what we get are stories about Christchurch as an act of Islamophobic violence, El Paso as an act of anti-immigrant violence, Pittsburgh as anti-Semitic violence, Charleston as anti-black violence, and they are all of those things. But all of those gunmen... We're also white power activists with a clear ideology, a clear set of social interactions. And, and you know, this, this backing ideology, it's not lone wolf violence.
0: So this makes, you know, a very interesting organizational structure. It's almost like there's you know, joined not so much by what we'd think of as a traditional organization, but instead by a common worldview, uh, a sensibility a set of texts, like the te- the Turner Diary is very important to them, or, you know, things that um, they learn on the internet. Um, they were very early adapters of the uh, the bulletin board systems, you know, in the 90s. So um, this is not a, a conventional kind of organization for a political movement.
1: Right. And even with the bulletin boards, you know, they're using a thing called LibertyNet on the proto-internet as early as 1983, 84. And part of the reason we know that is that The order, which stole millions of dollars from armored car robberies and other kinds of robberies in the Pacific Northwest, went around the country distributing money to other white power groups of all stripes. And then Lewis Beam went around teaching everyone how to get online with the Mac mini computers they had just purchased with that money. So we see that that social network framework was in many ways pioneered by this movement. And on LibertyNet, you see things like ideological tracks and assassination lists, but you also see things like personal ads. So this really was social network activism decades before Facebook.
0: There's an important turn around 1983 in which they went from working with the state to being anti-state. What happened?
1: This is interesting. And and part of why it's significant for us now is that this happened in the middle of the Reagan years um, at a time where left and center observers might have thought that this movement stands to gain from supporting politics. But What this movement concluded is that the kinds of changes it wanted were too radical ever to be delivered by mainstream politics. In other words, they they talked about things like a return to slavery or the reestablishment of Jim Crow or an apartheid system. They didn't think they could get that kind of change from even the conservative Political system. So, what they decided instead was that the government had betrayed them in Vietnam. They would never get what they needed. And they made a call for a move from the ballot to the bullet. Now, that will be familiar to historical minded listeners from, of course, um, the Black Panther moment. And the people that I write about, of course, would never cite Malcolm X. But there is this moment of extremism that is kind of broader in the same time period. And they are taking a page from that book.
0: Gender is very important here. The movement seems extremely male, almost cartoonishly macho, yet uh, femininity is important as well. Uh, Women uh, do the social reproduction for the white nationalists um, and also uh, the symbolic role of white womanhood. Talk first about the role of women within these organizations.
1: Sure, this is one of the big surprises from the archive because I thought this is going to be a story about paramilitary masculinity. That's how the movement kind of presents itself. It turns out that the glue that holds all of these different groups together across, you know, all regions of the country, across different kinds of space, um, there's a lot of very different kinds of activists brought into this movement. And the glue really is women. They're doing an incredible job at mediating all of the ties between these leaders. It turns out that what you have to do is follow the stories of which group had um, a leader whose daughter married the leader of a different group. Um, We see things like double weddings that are meant to symbolize the ties between different people. We see shared childcare, shared curricula. And then of course, there's a bunch of women who say over and over again that they're not activists in this movement, but are doing a lot of things that I think we would recognize as activism, like writing their own publications, um, leading auxiliary groups for women, trying to get men to change how they see women, even within the movement, and then doing a lot of the sort of um, underside of even the most violent activism. So Although women are not usually involved in things like assassination schemes, we do see them doing things like driving getaway cars and helping people dye their hair to evade the pursuing agents and things like this. It's profoundly driven by women's activism and women's work. Now, that is, as you say, sometimes in tension with the symbolic um, deployment of, I guess, what what the movement would consider the pure white female body and the importance of women's reproduction, this is a movement that is so deeply fixated on the birth rate and the perceived hyperfertility of people of color that white women's reproduction is really prized and really heavily policed. So we do see those two things happening, sometimes in tension and sometimes not. Um, and even when women are being activists and trying to become you know, what they would describe as race warriors in their own right, they often say things like, I'm going to be a race warrior, but only after I've had two to three children, you know, to help with the birth rate first.
0: I'm speaking with historian Kathleen Ballou, author of Bring the War Home, published by Harvard University Press. Yeah, I used to call a, uh, several of the, these hotlines back in the 80s and early 90s, uh, Tom Metzger's, which was really quite something. Um, and then there was there an was uh, Aryan woman hotline, And I remember they they introduced it by saying the the highest flower of human evolution, the white woman.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah,
0: that's uh, immense symbolic importance, this white woman.
1: Yes. So that might have been the Aryan Women's League, which was run by Kathleen Metzger, Tom's wife, and sought to provide content for the women in the movement. And significantly, sometimes would even challenge Tom Metzger. Um, She she has a piece of writing somewhere that was about, you know, we don't want to be just wives and housekeepers. We want to be part of this race war. We want to take up arms too.
0: How much of it was a backlash against feminism, the feminist movement of the 70s? Was any of uh, the masculinity driven um, to violence by that?
1: Oh, certainly. I mean, I think that um, feminism is one of the ways that this set of people sort of saw their world as under attack. Um, And certainly this movement also understood feminism to be one of those boogeyman threats against the white birth rate, the logic being that if women went back to work, they wouldn't be in the home, they wouldn't be having white children this is part of the, the broader set of conservative women's activist movements in this period. And I think um, the work of Michelle Nickerson is absolutely critical here, because um, as she writes, people on the left, ranging from, uh, you know, historians to sociologists to journalists, have often missed women's activism and therefore missed the whole conservative movement. Um, certainly, that's part of the reason we had such a delay in the historiography around the new right is because so much of it was about women's grassroots activism. And she argues that part of the reason for that is that we who are doing the writing often have this idea of activism and feminism that matches our own sense of what that might look like. Um, And so when women on the right say, I'm not an activist, we have taken them at their word. But, But the thing is that they are, in fact, doing political activism. They're doing this work. And by paying attention to and taking seriously the life stories of the women that are doing all of this, it really shows us how this movement has operated in times that we have not given credence to in the past.
0: Now the parallels with the respective side of the conservative movement are interesting here too. Because George Gilder went from being a liberal Republican to being um, an extremely right-wing libertarian sexist, um, partly because of the, uh, the federal child care bill that Nixon almost signed. Yeah, and it's just amazing that this mix of the, the fear of the f- um, the destruction of the family with together with libertarian economics is really uh, quite joined at the hip.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think one way to think about it, too, is that um, the other thing that leaderless resistance does is it really changes the way that these activists are thinking about what they're trying to do, um, which is to say that I think there's been a mistake in some of the work charting the rise and fall of these groups with missing something that that um, some very prescient sociologists pointed out in the early 1980s, which is that if your goal is to do leaderless resistance terrorist organizing, you're not trying to get 2,000 people to march down Main Street, you're trying to get six people who will detonate a bomb. So sometimes the declining numbers actually forecast increasing rates of violent activism. And I think it's useful to think about the relationship between that violent fringe and what's happening in that larger kind of, I think, what did you just say? Respectable conservatism? Yeah. I respect- usually would say like mainstream conservatism, Yeah, but we can think about it kind of as like a series of concentric circles, like a bullseye. And in the middle are those hardcore activists um, who might do something radical. Um, and that group of people in the period of my study in the eighties is only like, I don't know, 10 to 25,000 people. And then outside of them are the people who might purchase the newspapers regularly, come to rallies, do public events. And that's only like another hundred and fifty thousand people. And then outside of that is a group that's less committed and they don't purchase the newspapers, but they regularly read the newspapers. Right. Um, And that's say, 450,000 people. So I think what we're trying to get at, and I think where some new work would be really useful, is the interface between that outer circle and the bigger, much bigger, but much more amorphous circle of people who would never pick up something that says, you know, official newspaper of the Knights of the KKK, but who might agree with the ideas that are presented in it, especially if they come to you through a social relationship or over the dinner table or through a trusted friend. So that model of organizing works to push ideas from the center out into the mainstream Kind of ecosphere. It also pulls people who can be radicalized from the more respectable circles, you know, progressively towards that center. And that's worked really effectively for this movement to to bring people into those smaller, hardcore groups when they are kind of ripe for radicalization.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of these guys were not interested in uh, creating a mass movement. They were interested in spectacular actions that could perhaps catalyze a race war or somehow cause the broad white population to wake up. But it was not like they were trying to create a mass organization.
1: Exactly. And they're not interested in. Well, I mean, you put your finger right on it. And thank you very much for bringing that point up. That means that when we see an action like the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, that's not the end point of what they're trying to do. It's not like, haha, we have accomplished it. It's finished. That action is designed within this movement to, as you say, awaken, quote unquote, other white activists Um, awaken the population of white people. They believe that they can use guerrilla acts of violence like that to start an insurrection.
0: What about the role of the Turner Diaries? A very significant text, work of fiction, but it's almost as if it's a textbook for them.
1: Yes. Well, and, and that's exactly why it's important is it fills this imaginative problem for the movement, which is to say they have to answer this question somehow about how can they possibly hope to do this? How can they possibly think that this tiny fringe movement is going to take on the most militarized super state in the history of the world. So what Turner Diaries does is lay out a plan. People who've read Turner Diaries will realize really quickly that it doesn't have the staying power. It does because it is a work of excellent fiction, but it's because it fills this imaginative void. It, It shows a path forward by which a group of guerrilla white power activists can wage war, undermine the United States, and then figure out how to achieve the overthrow of the government and eventually an all-white world through mass genocide of people of color.
0: Now, I've seen interviews with you where you're reluctant to comment on current events because you haven't seen the archives. So uh, I'll ask the question anyway. Uh, The kinds of things we've seen in the Trump years, you know, the Charlottesville, the Portland stuff, how continuous or discontinuous does that seem with the history you studied?
1: I do have to give the caveat that we don't have the kind of archive that I have for that earlier period. But I think, I think the historical archive from that earlier period can really tell us a lot about what we're seeing now. And the reason is that this is the same movement. This is continuous. There hasn't been a coherent stop or a major prosecution or a change in law and policy that has resulted in a decline. And, um, you know, one thing that's changed from um, some of the earlier interviews I've given about this book is that we now have a series of whistleblowers coming out from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI saying that not only is white power violence the greatest threat for domestic terrorism that we now face, but that we have not allocated sufficient resources to what they see as a growing problem. We have to listen to those people because they have the archive. They have the real-time evidence. They have the monitoring and the surveillance resources, and they're sending the warning bell. Um, They're sending up the flag. So are the people that work in de-radicalization, Who talk to people who are trying to leave this movement every day and say that they can't scale up fast enough to help everyone out who wants to get out. And I get all these emails from teachers and librarians and parents who see people being radicalized and they don't know what to do. We don't have a coherent set of resources to point those people to to help young people when they encounter this kind of ideology in the real world. So put that together with what I think anyone who follows any of these stories can see is not just. The Proud Boys, or Boogaloo, or parts of the militia movement, or Adam Waffen, or the base, or this string of white power mass shootings. What we have to do is read all of those things as part of the same story. I think it's evident that we're in a moment of rising tide and increasing momentum, and that it's urgent for all of us to do the work of opposing it.
0: Well, in the past, we had governments that were you know, at least partly committed to prosecuting or investigating although they didn't know it with great enthusiasm or success. But now we have a president who's encouraging them.
1: Yes. And, you know, even in the most generous interpretation of the remarks about the Proud Boys of the debate, even if he meant to say stand down, um, I think it's critical to understand that just because he has the power to call these activists to stand by. And I mean— people need to know that it's not just the Proud Boys who heard that call, it's all of these activists who heard that call. Just because he has the power to call them to readiness does not mean he has the power to stop them once they get going. I think that we will see additional activity um, in the weeks and months to come. And I, I think we are at a moment of absolutely critical intervention.
0: That is Kathleen Ballou, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Chicago, and author of Bring the War Home A History of the White Power Movement, published by Harvard University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the fourth of The Four Caprices, Opus 29, by the obscure Romanian-French composer Marcel Mihalovici, performed by Matt Rubinstein, just out of Toccata Classics. Next, climate change, specifically the 2100 Project, an atlas for the Green New Deal put out by the McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania. The dimensions of the climate crisis are difficult to process, both intellectually and emotionally. The atlas is an attempt to make it all comprehensible and, through the set of proposals known as the Green New Deal, make disaster seem less inevitable. Here to talk about the project are two of its 12 authors. Billy Fleming is the director of the Ian L. McHarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and A.L. McCullough, or A for short, is a research assistant there. Billy Fleming and A.L. McCullough. So let me start by asking you what, what what's the aim of the project? What are you hoping to communicate with this?
2: Sure. So there were a couple kind of like big animating concepts for, for the Atlas. Uh, one was to to just sort of recognize that much of the sort of critical built uh, built environment and, and climate data that could be spatialized, um, they're hidden away behind paywalls that folks outside of academic institutions couldn't access, or otherwise just kind of scattered across the, the vast web of the internet um, and living in various degrees of quality in various places. And so, one of the big aims of the, the Atlas is pull that together in, into one place, kind of curate it, make it you know beautiful and, and interesting enough that lots of people who, who might want to know that kind of information would be able to find it. And to then have it sort of curated as a single product, as an atlas for them. Um, but the other, I think, which uh, is maybe a little less obvious, unless you, you spend a lot of time reading through the introductory essay, um, which is a little long, is that, uh, you know, we were also quite interested, I think, in critiquing the idea of certainty that underpins a lot of the ways in which we talk about climate science in the future. Not because we're necessarily skeptical at all about the kinds of futures that might be possible under the different emission scenarios, um, but mostly because um, we're skeptical about the degree of certainty that is often expressed with each of those scenarios. And so, if you look at the aesthetic quality of the atlas, that's one of the reasons you see um, the pixels there instead of the the actual sort of geolocated data that you would find in you know the base maps that we use to build a lot of this work.
0: Okay, and now some specific topics. Matt has a book out with the perverse idea that we need a billion Americans. You um, work through some of the scenarios of what would it would be like to have another 100 million, which is one tenth what Matt is looking for. What would the country look like if we had another 100 million people here?
2: We lay out a few different kinds of scenarios. And in some ways, they're, they're just kind of tongue in cheek scenarios. They're not meant to be hyper realistic in any way, but we sort of take the three common types of urbanization in the U.S., right? So, one, One scenario, adding 100 million people at a density that's consistent with that of, say, New York, one that's with the city of Chicago and one that's with the city of Phoenix. So getting kind of the spread from from low to high density U.S. kinds of development. And even then, you know, we're taking that 100 million um, additional people as sort of the median projection from the census after 2060. So I don't know where, you know, I don't know. I haven't read Matt's book. I don't really plan to. Um, I don't know where he gets the one billion figure from.
0: He just wants the clicks, I think, what it's all about, really.
2: Well, that, that sounds about right for Matt. But I, I think for us, we were interested in, in just sort of testing some of those scenarios to, to, again, start to ask some of these questions about how much land really is available for, for that many people at these different kinds of densities. And I think the thing you find pretty quickly is that while there are some like real land constraints in certain parts of the country, adding 100 million people to the U.S. is actually like no real problem in terms of land area. the The choices that are left to make then are about kind of where those 100 million people go, and then what kind of, of level of development we're talking about. And obviously those change like the, the land intensity or the land development demands quite a lot. If you're talking about 100 million people, you know, at the density of New York, which is something like 13 New Yorks um, to sort of add to the U.S. by 2060, or 100 million people at the density of Phoenix, which is, you know, 60 something Phoenixes by 2060, middle of the century. And I'm sure I, I don't want to cut A off. So I'm sure A has thoughts on that as well.
3: I think it's also a question of infrastructure. You know, um, we also lay out, we would need 476 round trips between New York and Los Angeles worth of roads to build for those 100 million more people. So it's, you know, these concrete urban forms, these kind of coalesced areas, but it's also, you know, a huge amount of infrastructure to support the places where these people will be.
0: And then I was struck by the, the map of changing mortality patterns. Could you just describe those in words and the visual is striking, but what what's it look like in words?
2: Well, I should say, I'll, I'll kind of preface it and then and turn back to A, just by saying, you know, that's part of a, a series of climate impacts maps at the end of the Atlas that will probably be familiar to people who've read David, Wall, David Wallace Wells' um, The Uninhabitable Earth. The, the scenarios he uses to animate um, his very dystopian view of, of what the, the planet could look like in the worst case scenario for climate change. And so, you know, we have things in there that are looking at overall kind of commercial damages, economic damages, agricultural damages, and the, the map you're, you're kind of referencing there about mortality um, is just basically taking, you know, a study that, that looked at the effect of heat and some precipitation pattern changes and a few other physical scientific variables and projecting them out to what they might have to do with, um, you know, human mortality. If you look at the parts of the map where the rates become the most, or become the highest, the most acute... Uh, They're also the places that we find as kind of historic sites of disinvestment for most of the US. So you're talking about the Southeast, and especially the Black Belt of the Southeast. You're talking about the rural parts of the Great Plains. You're talking about the Southwest, all of which like, have incredibly vulnerable populations. And even looking further north, you know, we have another animation that's outside of that map that looked at the city of Chicago, which is already the highest mortality death rate city in the country, taking on the temperature profile of Dallas, Texas today, which you know, presents all kinds of other problems, but also presents a ton of built environment problems about what we do with our uh, cities that are full of hundreds of thousands or millions of people and are already being really like cooked every summer.
0: What can we do? How dire is that future?
3: I think that's something we critique in this atlas. The future under climate change doesn't have to be all certain doom. That we can take these aspirational projects, you know, and, and examples of aspirational projects like the New Deal, like the Moonshot, and do them again in a way <laughs> to to kind of project that, that climate imaginary future where the Green New Deal happens and and it's not, so human doom, doom and kind of work back from there and and imagine a better future.
0: Yeah, to me, I mean, the Green New Deal it was dismissed by Nancy Pelosi as a dream, but it seems to be um, quite practical and realistic considering the alternatives.
2: Yeah, I mean, really, it's the only plan on offer that even tries to fuse the more kind of technocratic concerns of, say, carbon mitigation or emissions mitigation with the kind of demands from workers for for jobs with also the demands of frontline communities for centering justice. I mean, happy to consider other plans if there are any others that ever emerge that try to do those three things at once. But, you know, in uh, the last 30 or 40 years of American climate policy, this is really the only one.
0: How much space is there in the country for alternative means of generating energy, the solar or the wind? Do we have the space? I mean, Michael Moore's uh, the Planet of the Humans, not Michael Moore. He produced it. But that Planet of the Humans movie was quite gloomy on that possibility, partly because they thought it was going to take up so much space. How much space do we have?
2: Yeah, well, I think, one, we should just say that that movie was kind of insane for all kinds of reasons. One was just, I think, its its view of the, the land constraints or scarcity that are really kind of imagined more than they are real um, in the way that they're talking about them. And then just also, I think, in the critique that because pieces of the renewable energy kind of system require rare earth mineral mining in Latin America or the Congo or parts of China, That they are off the table in terms of, of, you know, ideas or solutions for the future. They're all imperfect, but uh, I can't imagine um, shutting down solar or wind panel um, commercialization or production because of rare earth mineral mining and then relegating us to a future um, populated entirely by natural gas and oil, which is what that kind of a, a critique sort of makes possible for us. The shorter answer to your question about land area is that, yeah, look, of course we have room, I think, for lots of these things. We probably can't do everything everyone wants in equal measure, right? Like we probably can't put 100% renewable energy and 100% regenerative agriculture and 100% urbanism or urban development that uh, has typically characterized, you know, American cities or American communities, at least not in the way we've currently thought about them. But, you know, the question about like where all of this stuff goes in some ways is kind of moot because we haven't even really tried to do all of those things at once in the U.S. What we tried to foreground in this atlas is that Thinking about them as like discrete categories of things to do is always the wrong way to approach it. That thinking about renewable energy, renewable energy generation and say regenerative agriculture and say different kinds of community or urban development in the same place co-located is not only like a great way to save space, like land for other things, but it's also a way to connect people to all of the systems that like make their lives possible.
0: Hey, you look like you had more to say about that.
3: So I'm also a landscape architect in addition to being research assistant and student. So the idea of co-location is really exciting to me.
0: Well, yeah, could you talk more about what that means?
3: So co-location, it's moving away from even the land use map that we use in the Atlas, right? Pointing to somewhere and saying, you know, this is agriculture, this is cities, this is forest. Co-location is, is about formations where if that land can do or that space can do both things, so you know, maybe a formation of agriculture where we could have solar along with growing crops or, or biofuels or even just sequ- carbon sequestration, right? How can both of these exist in space together? And that's a really exciting proposition, I think, for designers and for people looking to build these kind of greener deal futures.
0: Oh, and finally, we, we touched on this a bit, but uh, a lot of people who look at climate politics or the climate science. Get lost in despair about the future, which is very demobilizing for if you're trying to organize people to do something about it. But yeah, how much despair do you suffer from, and uh, uh, can we um, avoid uh, catastrophe? Oh,
3: that's a hard. That's a hard question because I definitely feel despair. You know, as as all people, the emotions come and go for me. But I find a lot of hope in in my work, particularly in design, um, which I see as a, a project of creating imaginaries, creating these future spaces, and then mapping out for people the actions we need to take to reach those future spaces. And, and the future doesn't have to be defined. So I can, I can take that despair and I can imagine a future where we can meet these jobs, justice, and decarbonization goals, right? It's, it's not a trade-off and it's not hopeless. And then I get to do the amazing work of taking the next steps to say, this is how we get there.
2: Yeah, that's such an important point, because I have plenty of friends who I think are right, who say that like, we've baked in a lot of really bad things that are just not going to be changeable about the future. But the degree of how bad things get is like very much still in question. And the ability of folks to to be able to like make for themselves like fulsome, like fulfilling lives in an era defined by climate change is very much still like something that is possible. And um, it's not possible, I think, if we if we succumb to the kind of grief and despair that can often feel overwhelming. But I think it is possible when when the kinds of practices A is talking about um, become more central to the way we think about shaping the future. And so, you know, thinking about um, the shape of the future, the shape and content of the future, um, and how much you know agency we really do have was really again like one of these animating goals of the Atlas was to say things could get really bad. They're sort of inevitably going to get at least a little worse for some people. And so, how do we think about using tools like this and many other tools like it to exert some control over the trajectory of our lives. Our hope was always that this would find some some interest at like the national level with folks who get to talk about this stuff for a living, but that more importantly, it would be used by people who are already organizing around visions they had or, or were, were developing for the future. Um, and it could become a tool for them in the work that they're already doing. We've already seen that. We've seen, you know, whether it's ranged from sort of local sunrise chapters to agricultural extension offices, um, to rural electric co-ops, to all kinds of folks who probably aren't considered at the sort of core of, say, the climate justice movement in cities like Philly or New York or San Francisco, but who nevertheless have been leading a lot of this work for a really long time, um, finding the Atlas useful, which to us was always like the goal and not something we really expected to happen this quickly, but it's been a nice surprise.
0: Those were Billy Fleming and A.L. McCullough, two of the authors of the 2100 Project, an atlas for the Green New Deal, put up at the McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania. The web address is a mouthful, so I'll just say Google 2100 Project Green New Deal, and you'll find it. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another bit from Matt Rubinstein's newly released collection of piano music by the little-known Romanian-French composer Marcel Mihalovici. This is from the third movement of his Sonata, Opus 90. Till next week, bye.